amen. The Lord is so good. His presence is so sweet in this place. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb and team, for leading us in worship today. Um, well, let me see if I can get this clicker to work for me. Um, works. Okay, awesome. Um, okay, so we're continuing our sermon series in Isaiah in which we're looking at these passages um, where we hear about this servant of the Lord, and this servant at times uh, is Israel, uh, both at times unfaithful, disobedient Israel, and at times it seems faithful, the, the remnant of Israel, um, but other times it seems to have to push forward to an individual, a future figure to come, who of course we, we know is Jesus. And so um, today I want us to consider the identity of Christ, and this is going to be kind of a deep dive in many ways. To set, a, to set it, uh, us up today, um, I want to kind of put before us uh, a concept that happened in the 60s where television basically uh, radically transformed the way in the landscape of American politics. And this was seen really acutely in the debate between Kennedy and Nixon, right, where people who uh, listened to the debate thought that Nixon won and people who watched the debate thought that Kennedy won. Kennedy just looked so much better. I mean, he, he was tan. He had, um, you know, this blue coat that looked great against the gray backdrop. Uh, Nixon looked, he was just sweating and disheveled, and he had this gray suit that made him just kind of blend into the wall. And it was this fascinating case study to the extent to which we recognize leadership potential in large part based on form, appearance, and presentation. So I want to take a deep dive today into... Some questions like, what is it about Jesus that we're drawn to? What, is, what, are, what are certain presentations of Jesus that we find ourselves drawn to? Um, in some ways, a, a dangerous, this is going to sound counterintuitive, I know, but in some ways, a dangerous statement is one that says, that says something about Jesus that resonates with you. Um, because it's one thing for Jesus to draw me to him. It's a different thing for me to talk about ideas I've heard about Jesus that I like. Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. Um, this, I just want to say, you know, <laughs> before I continue, uh, if, if you're looking today for a gentle pastoral sermon um, that will help you through the challenges of life, I'm happy to say I preached that sermon last Sunday. Go back and listen to it. it it's, it'll help you, I think. Um, so let's turn to Isaiah 52, and we're going to read beginning in verse 13. Let me read it for us. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many nations, uh, sorry, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So the servant is introduced. You guys are probably are mostly familiar with Isaiah 53. It begins here at the end of 52. Um, and he's introduced as this one who will act wisely. Now, the Hebrew word for wisdom, chakmah, has to do with a skillful living, 
doing things with skill that bring about the desired outcomes. So if your goal is to walk with God, the Old Testament will say, you need to have the fear of the Lord. That leads to that, right? Um, and there's other ways throughout the aspects of life that we can live skillfully. And it means that you are successful in what you're actually setting out to do. Um, and that's important because it means that the servant of the Lord was successful in what he set out to do. And again, that's important because at no point is the reader of Isaiah 53 supposed to conclude that the servant failed in his mission. Even when you come across uh, the public rejection, suffering, and death that he experiences. Um, he was wise and was fully successful in what he set out to do. And verse 15 um, well, verse 15 says that he shall sprinkle many nations, and that is, that's priestly language. The priests in the Old Testament would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal on objects, on even the congregation, as a purifying act. And this, this servant takes on this priestly role, uh, which is, that's easily acceptable. Uh, but then you go on to find out the servant isn't just the priest, he's the sacrificial animal, as we read on. So, um, verse 1 of 53 says, Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should desire him, and no beauty that we, uh, no, that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. For he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So in verse 1, we come across this phrase, the arm of the Lord. And that is a phrase that is just pregnant with meaning and power um, in the kind of the Hebrew mindset. Because the arm of the Lord was that thing by which God oppresses the people of Israel, the enemies of Israel, and conquers the earth. That's what the arm of the Lord is. So just the chapter before in Isaiah 51, it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you, still talking to the arm of the Lord, who dried up the sea? The waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. By the way, what Old Testament scene is that referencing? The Exodus, right, yeah, the, the parting of the Red Sea, that God's arm was doing that as the people of God walked through the sea. And then interestingly, later in Isaiah chapter 63, we read, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people, where he was, where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? With the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? And that's profound. So earlier we read that it was the arm of the Lord that parted the Red Sea. It was also the arm of the Lord that apparently can attach itself to human arms and human vessels to do powerful things in the earth. And that's what was happening to Moses' arm as he was the representative of God's power parting those seas, right? So strength, power, image of salvation and God's glory. We read in the chapter just a few verses before Isaiah 52, 13, 
In verse 10 it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So we come to verse 1 of 53, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, now connected to this servant, and we're expecting great things from this guy, right? That's what we expect, and then we find that this arm of the Lord is victimized and abused and ridiculed, marginalized, and killed. Interestingly, the Jewish Qumran community that existed before the time of Christ and after, um, they read the Hebrew scriptures and they concluded that we're awaiting two messiahs. There's no way that all the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament could coalesce in a single individual. There's just no way. And so we must be waiting for a Messiah um, in the line of David, the Messiah of Israel, and a priestly Messiah in the line of Aaron. Um, and one, the, the one in the line of David would be kind of that warrior king, and the other Messiah that's coming would be this uh, priestly figure who makes atonement for the sins of Israel and redeems us and redeems our moral failings. Um, there's just no way that could all coalesce in a single person, which it is kind of remarkable that it did, isn't it? Um, so, in the time leading up to Christ, in the hundreds of years before, and certainly by around 100 BC, 100 years before Christ, this transition had happened among the Jews in Palestine to where they had formerly all spoken Hebrew. And by that time, they, for whatever reason, uh, the common tongue was now a language called Aramaic. And that was the language that Jesus spoke and the disciples. And um, Aramaic had, become, had replaced the common tongue um, had become a common tongue, although Hebrew was still the, the language of the learned and for those who wanted to read the Hebrew scriptures. And so what happened is Jews would come to synagogue in the, the towns and villages and cities, wherever they lived, and they would hear the Hebrew scriptures read in Hebrew. And then, for the people who, many of whom didn't understand the Hebrew, um, they would read the Aramaic. But the Aramaic was, they had these things called Aramaic Targums, Targum is the word for translation or interpretation. And the Aramaic Targums were, of course, in the common tongue, but they were translations very loosely. There, in many ways, were basically commentaries on the text. Um, and so, here's an example. Uh, the Aramaic Targum of Isaiah 53. The Hebrew text of Isaiah 53.4 says, Surely he took our infirmities. That's what your Bible will have. The Aramaic Targum would have said, then he shall pray on behalf of our transgressions. So no longer is the servant actually taking on infirmity. The servant is standing in this priestly role and making intercession through prayers to God rather than actually receiving the intercession in his body. Verse 7, the Hebrew text says, he was oppressed and afflicted. And then the Aramaic Targum, which would have been read in the synagogues, said, he was praying and was answered, right? I mean, barely a translation, right? Um, and then you come to verse 12, which says, he shall make intercession for many transgressions, and the Aramaic Targum was like, okay, we're cool with that. That'll, that'll work for us, because we have it in mind a Messiah who prays for us, but there's no possible way he could be brutalized, victimized, 
like this. That just does not fit. And we want to make sure that people don't misunderstand that that's what it says. So we're going to tell them this is, what it's, this is how you should read Isaiah 53. Interesting, right? I was uh, reading um, a book uh, that kind of goes all the way through the Bible with Adeline a few weeks ago. And we came to the crucifixion scene. And Jesus is on the cross. The soldiers are there. And Adeline asked me, um, who killed Jesus? And I said, well, the, the soldiers here, they killed Jesus. And she, she looks at the page. She looks at me and with this puzzled look on her face. She goes, but he's powerful. And I said, you're right, Adeline. Jesus is powerful. But he decided to let them kill him so that he could pay for our sins. Of course, Adeline is responding to something just innate in us all, that if you have power, you exert power, right? To protect yourself and your own. And Lamentations 4.20 to me is such a profound verse that speaks of the, that innate human desire to have leaders that stand tall that we can find shelter under. Um, and this is a verse, the context of Lamentations is this shattered, broken community within Jerusalem, who are the, the stragglers who are left behind, um, and so undesirable that they weren't even taken off into exile in Babylon. And Jerusalem's been destroyed by the Babylonians. The Davidic line and dynasty has been ended. The last Davidic king has been taken off into exile. The best and the brightest and the learned have all been exiled and imported um, to Babylon and elsewhere. And it's just the poorest of the poor, broken, shattered remnant that's there. And they're just in, there's grieving and lamenting. And they, they're saying this. They say, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Now, the Lord's anointed is the word Messiah, Mashiach. The first Messiah in the Bible isn't Jesus. The first Messiah in the Bible is who? Is who? It, yeah, yes, in, in a way, yes. The, the first individual who's called the Lord's anointed is Saul. He's the first Mashiach. And then the second uh, Lord's anointed becomes David. And then David's sons uh, have this covenant with God. God covenants with David. And he, as the Lord's anointed, um, in this covenant with God, then his, his lineage, his kingly lineage, they become the Lord's anointed. Um, even, even the unrighteous and wicked kings uh, in David's line were the Lord's anointed by their connection to the covenant. And so the people are saying that you know, the, the last of the Davidic kings has been taken off into Babylon. He's thrown in their pits. And they're saying, he was the breath of our nostrils. Who, Even though he was actually a wicked king, they were able to look to him and project their hopes on him. And you think about the imagery here. You know, the breath of our nostrils, that's basically something that sustains your life moment by moment, right? And then the other image, both of life, is under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Basically here, a figure who looms large over us, this, this giant among men in whom we can crowd all together under his massive shadow and find security and safety in the nations. And as long as he's standing tall, we're going to be fine, right? 
And this, in Lamentations 4.20, speaks to something that is in all of us, really at, at all times, in what we look to in our leaders. And we have the tendency to project our hopes and our, our sense of security on our earthly leaders. And that's, I think, why it's important for us to really, really ask God to show us who the real, tri- the real Christ, the true anointed one, really is. And by the way, at the same time, we have a tendency to project our fears and our, our insecurities upon the leaders we don't like, which is why anyone who's famous and just a little bit influential is a candidate for a good antichrist conspiracy theory. Right? Well, so let's talk about what Jesus is like for a moment. I want to put some questions on screen for us. Um, what do you think about Jesus? I'm going to go quickly through these, but kind of just give me your gut response. And by the way, there's really no right or wrong answer. You might differ with me a little bit on that, but there's not supposed to be a right or wrong answer on these. So does his mood go up or down? No, no, don't say out loud. This is for you. <laughs> don't let Jonathan's answer color your opinions. All right, but I appreciate that. All right, to yourself, is he talkative? Is he rather lively? I love this one. Would he take drugs that may have strange or dangerous effects? (laughs) Does he prefer to go his own way rather than act according to the rules? Is he mostly quiet when he's with other people? Has he ever cheated at a game? Okay, now your turn. Are you a talkative person? Are you rather lively? Here, y'all ready for it? Would you take drugs that have strange or dangerous effects? <laughs> Do you prefer to go your own way rather than act by the rules? Are you mostly quiet when you're with other people? And have you ever cheated at a game? <laughs> gotcha. So these are questions that come from a survey that a a college professor named Scott McKnight gives to his Gospels class, each uh, introductory class that he teaches. And the the full test is uh, 24 questions about Jesus and then 24 questions about yourself. They're slightly tweaked. Um, And what's interesting about this test is, um, you know, even even those ones that are like, would would Jesus take experimental drugs... (laughs) (laughs) Um, that may have strange or dangerous effects. You may have had this gut response of like, oh no, Jesus would never do that. Well, there's people who take this test and go, I mean, come on. I bet Jesus wasn't a stick in the mud. I mean, I bet Jesus was a thrill seeker at times. I could totally see him doing that just for fun. They'll they'll say that on the test. Other people will be like, look, Jesus, I bet Jesus was the life of the party. Like, I could totally see Jesus pulling a fast one in a game, slightly cheating, with his disciples, and the, okay, maybe, maybe he fesses up after the game, right? Um, 
But of course, when it comes to their answer, they say, yeah, 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 totally. What's fascinating about this test, Scott McKnight says, and this has been field tested and approved, is that we have a tendency to project our mental image of Jesus in a way that's oftentimes an idealized version of myself. As though Jesus basically conforms to who I am on my best day. In that, basically, Jesus is who I would be if I was perfect. But think about it. The perfect you is still a different person than the perfect me. So this entire way of envisioning Jesus is totally flawed, right? And it seems in some ways, though, to be our default if we're not aware of it. And in some ways, I think this betrays a kind of idolatry, even a kind of self-worship. Um, my family, my parents, took uh, my brothers and I to a large black Baptist church uh, for, I think, I think it was like fifth grade, sixth grade, part of seventh grade. And so those middle school years. And um, I loved Sardis. Uh, actually, the preaching was just fiery. The, the choir was lit. I mean, it was just, like the energy in the room was incredible. Um, I loved the services there. Uh, I actually remember one time some friends of mine, um, some of my white high school friends, we're like, I forgot to say, we were the only uh, white family, as far as I can remember, the only white family in a church of several thousand. Um, I mean, y'all, I, I'd, I'd never felt white before. I remember walking in the room at times and being like, I've got to get a tan. <laughs> like, I'm just pasty, you know I mean? I'd, I'd never felt my race before, and it was a really helpful Experience for me, you know, just always being in a white dominant setting. Um, all that to say, I had a, a friend of mine, or several friends of mine, ask me, like, what's it like? What's it like being the only white family in an all-black church? And I said, totally serious. I said, it's like being a white marshmallow in a cup of hot cocoa. For years, they ridiculed me. <laughs> like, here comes the marshmallow. Um, so all that to say, um, I remember times walking through the halls at Sardis, and um, there would be pictures on the walls and of, of the life of Christ and the Gospels. And I'd see the disciples and Jesus, and in all the pictures, I noticed something strange, and that's, what, that's that Jesus was, Jesus was black. <laughs> and I was, sh I was literally shocked by it. Um, not offended, just shocked. Um, and maybe this, maybe this is some um, underlying racism, I don't know, but I remember thinking so many times, like, oh my gosh, like, this is, this is fine, but like, this is so historically inaccurate. And it took me years to realize, years to realize that the picture behind me is every bit as historically inaccurate as this one. But I had seen this picture a hundred times in a dozen living rooms throughout my entire childhood and never once, never once thought about the presentation of Jesus being put before me in those pictures. This, by the way, uh, is uh, Warner Salman's The Head of Christ, The Head of Jesus, the 1940 uh, painting. And it is the all-time most reproduced image of Jesus. Let me read you this quote by Beth Daly. 
Through Solomon's partnerships with two Christian publishing companies, one Protestant and one Catholic, the head of Christ came to be included on everything from prayer cards to stained glass, faux oil paintings, calendars, hymnals, and nightlights. Solomon's painting culminates a long tradition of white Europeans creating and disseminating pictures of Christ made in their own image. The truth is this, is that we tend to search for God in ways that reflect our preferences. And our, our preferences are a reflection of who we are, not who God is. Jesus came and said, okay, I see all those messianic expectations you have of me, and I'm just going to go ahead and blow them all up. Right? I mean, matter of fact, you want someone who, a figure who looms large under whose shadow you can hide and, and be strong among the nations? You want someone you can lift up? I'll let you lift me up on a cross. You want someone who can defeat the Romans you can see? I'll drive out the demons you can't see. You want someone attractive to look at? There'll be no beauty about me that you'll desire me. You want someone who is, has this kind of regal mystique? I'll come like a root out of dry ground. There'll be no form or majesty that you'll want to look at me. You want someone who has the power and the will to oppress your oppressors? I'll come with the power and the will to heal the oppressed and the oppressor. And you might say something like, okay, Gabriel, well, like, there are ways in which we see ourselves in Jesus' story, and there are ways in which Jesus' rise kind of reflects something that we all want. I mean, think about it. Everybody loves a good rags-to-riches story, right? And isn't that basically what we get with Jesus? Born in a humble manger, the poor boy from Smallville, Nazareth, who faces great challenges and rises to heaven itself. I mean, it's, it's basically a glorified rags-to-riches story. But the plot of every rags-to-riches story in TV and literature is of a person who overcomes great challenges to achieve their own personal dreams of achievement and success. Or maybe the Cinderella version of the rags to riches story is of someone who gets their own dream ending, in large part being promoted because of her surpassing beauty. But in either way, whether through your surpassing desirability, that you're desirable in the earth by some standard, or you are a hard worker, it's about achieving your own personal dreams and success. Um, and that's what we all want, which is why we'll continue to eat up these stories. The four Gospels don't give us a story of, the, of a first century Jew who managed to achieve personal happiness. Nor does it give us the story of the Son of God who fell to the earth and made his way back to his Father. Jesus sees human expectations of exaltation and just ruthlessly declines to meet them. It's as though he comes to us as a human, which of course he does, and then he just gives us this picture of exaltation that runs counter to everything we know about human nature, which reminds me of Isaiah 52, verse 14, which says, As many as were astonished at you 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, I know that at a literal level, this is speaking of the the physical disfigurement of the Christ um, and of the servant, which, of course, it is. But I I think it strikes deeper than even the physical. Um, And at a spiritual level, there is a very real sense in which Jesus, in his sacrificial obedience to the Father, comes to us in a way that he's disfigured to a point that we no longer recognize human wisdom in him. We no longer recognize the human path of exaltation in him. And yet God says he's acted wisely in verse 13. And it's here that we either reject him as a Jesus that doesn't fit our expectations of exaltation, or we join the kings who shut their mouths because of him. As verse 15 says, These kings who shut their mouths because of him for that which they had not been told they see and that which they had not heard they understand. Um, In John's gospel, which is broken up in in three sections, there's the prologue at the beginning which talks about Jesus kind of in prehistory and pre-creation, verse kind of 318. And then there's what's called the book of signs, which is from there through the end of chapter 12, And after the book of signs is an an extended passion week in John's gospel, which is chapters 13 to 21. But the book of signs gives, you know, basically 1 to 12, it gives us these incredible miracles of Jesus, healing the sick, driving out demons, his mastery over creation, seeing and walking on water, multiplying the bread, things like that. And by the end, John helps his readers reckon with the fact that after all of that, so many have rejected him. And in the end of John, in the book of, I mean, the end of the book of signs in John 12, he basically gives a commentary on why it is that so many people have rejected Jesus. So in John 12, 36, it says, this is kind of the end of of a message Jesus is giving, He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. He goes on, and this is really where John's commentary begins. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah has said, this time from Isaiah chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. So John in this moment of trying to help his readers make sense of the fact that so many rejected Jesus, He's, he, he borrows from and pulls heavily from Isaiah. First, Isaiah 53, verse 1, and then Isaiah chapter 6. And I put up there the words before um, where Jesus says, believe in the light. And that, to me, is an, is an odd expression, isn't it? If you think about it, believe in the light. I mean, do you guys think that there's lights on in the room right now? I mean, was that a leap of faith for you? Light is instantly apparent, as is darkness. 
And so what does this mean? Well, it's hard to understand unless we're talking about blindness, which of course is exactly where verse 40 takes you to. A blind person can't discern whether the room they're in is light or dark. And then he talks about someone who saw Jesus for who he was. And you're thinking, okay, well, maybe one of the disciples, maybe Mary Magdalene, maybe one of the lepers. Apparently, it was Isaiah who saw Jesus. John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What's the glory he's talking about? Well, given the quote we just read from Isaiah chapter 6 of the blindness, Isaiah's most dramatic encounter with God in his lifetime happened in Isaiah chapter 6, which begins with the words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and what? Lifted up. And the servant song that he's already quoted begins with God saying in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold my servant who will be exalted and lifted up. And just to make sure that you understand that he's talking about multiple kinds of exaltation, John in this same chapter quotes Jesus saying, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And just to make sure that you don't think something different, he makes it clear, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So John has the audacity to couple the most dramatic throne room visitation of God's glory, the train of whose robe fills the temple, Creation is cowering before him in Isaiah chapter 6. The same person of whom that speaks, which apparently is Jesus. I mean, Isaiah is literally saying, I mean, if the, tr- the Trinity is all over the Bible, y'all. I mean, it really is. I mean, John is saying, Isaiah saw Jesus in that moment, Isaiah 6. Apparently, Jesus can be both the one who's lifted up in a throne room and the suffering servant, who's lifted up, the one lifted up on a cross. He can habitate both spheres of glory without any dissonance at all. And that's what humans can't do. And that's what Jesus, that's how Jesus shocks our system. And that's why people can't see him. So he continues in his commentary in verse 42 with these words. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, which is really interesting, because he's just been saying they didn't believe. There was a a way in which some of them actually did believe. They believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So we find that there was social pressure not to confess Jesus and openly follow him, Um, Social pressure that we don't experience anything like a lot of places um, in the world here, of course. Um, So we find that there was a level of faith, but it was weak faith. Faith not strong enough to confess him openly, um, we read. And then we come to verse 13, which is basically John's diagnosis of why it is that people, in spite of so many signs and wonders, could not accept Jesus. Ready for it? It's this. For they love the glory 
that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's why. That's why they couldn't see him. And this is a theme we find in John's gospel. Let me just take a moment and say, I realize that, you know, us in this room are not in the exact same situation as the people who didn't believe in Jesus. I mean, I understand that many of you in this room probably confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you would do it openly. Um, But this text, I think, does still speak to us because it says that you can have a measure of faith. And the, the weakness or strength of your faith has a lot to do with the extent to which you value the glory of God less than you value the glory of man, which to me is so profound. And it's the opposite of the way Jesus lived his life, who in John 5.41 said this, I don't receive glory from people. Like That's not what I'm doing here. That's not what I'm looking for. And then in that same chapter, he says to the, the religious leaders, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And don't seek the glory that comes only from the only God. I mean, literally connects. The, the, the hindrance to their faith is this thing again. Of valuing the glory that comes from men above the glory that comes from God. And by glory here, what we mean is praise or approval. The ways in which we seek the approval. Um, and it's not wrong to seek, seek the approval of people. I don't think that's inherently wrong. The question here is, What's our highest aim and value in life? To what extent does seeking the approval of man trump the approval of God? John gives the reason, as I said, of why in John 12 that so many didn't believe. And it's they, they loved, they loved the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. And, and my, my contention is this this morning. And I think that this is an accurate reading of the text. And it may be the most important thing I want to say. Is that if loving the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God blinds people to seeing who Jesus is, then I think the opposite is also true. That loving the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man opens your eyes to see Jesus. Because when you see Jesus for who he truly is, you, in the words of Isaiah, join the kings who shut their mouths because of him. For that which they had not been told they see, and that which they had not heard, they understand. Who are kings? Well, if you think about it, kings are the people in the earth who received the most glory from man. But even kings can and will learn to shut their mouths in the presence of God's way of exaltation modeled in the life of Christ. I want to go ahead and invite Caleb to come up. He's going to lead us in a song in just a moment. And we're going to take an offering uh, while we kind of stay in this place of prayer and meditation. So, Um, The plates will be up here in just a moment. Um, Caleb's going to play this song. I'm really excited about it. 
uh, it's really a song about just searching for Jesus um, in our lives and being on this journey of discovering him. Um, as we see here in this text, uh, you know, when God reveals Jesus to your heart, he can do that in ways that you see things in Jesus that you've never had someone talk to you about. That you can understand things about Jesus that you've never heard people say. You've never heard people talk about. Um, and there's absolutely a spiritual revelation and a spiritual sight into who Jesus is that comes that way. Like the king's experience in this text. And I think it comes again as we let our hearts just soar with hunger for Jesus. And just saying, God, I just care more. I just care more about your, your ways, your approval than any others. Because that's how Jesus lived. I don't seek glory from people, he said. Um, let's stand um, as we worship. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you today. God, I just ask that as we, as we worship, as we, as we give our offerings, you would just rest in this place, rest in our hearts. In your name, amen. If you have a physical offering, you can bring it to the front.